Okay, so that title suggests then that I should speak of the mystery of Christ, or even Christ himself as the sacrament of salvation. To talk not simply of the church's seven sacraments, but of Christ as a sacrament, is a feature of more recent theology. Edward Skillabix's book, Christ the Sacrament, first published in 1959, is emblematic. This manner of speaking theologically was so influential that it even entered into the catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 515 speaks of Christ's humanity as sacrament of his divinity and of the salvation he brings us. What is emphasized is the sign of value and instrumentality of Christ's humanity. What is visible in his earthly life, leading us into the invisible mystery of his divine sonship in regard to the Father and into his redemptive mission in regard to our salvation. Paragraph 774 then speaks of the saving work of his humanity as the sacrament of our salvation. All this clearly reflects Skillabix's contribution. But in what sense could or would Aquinas back in the 13th century have spoken of Christ as the sacrament of our salvation alongside talk of the seven sacraments? Although Skillabix's doctoral thesis covered something of this question, especially with regard to St. Thomas's commentary on the sentences, he did not really incorporate this aspect of the doctorate into his more famous and influential book. What later theologians and the catechism did was attempt a further synthesis of St. Thomas's own approach with Skillabix's speculative developments of St. Thomas's thought. Today I'm simply going to attempt to answer the question of what St. Thomas would have made of speaking of Christ as a sacrament, but working primarily from his commentaries on the Pauline epistles. The nearest we find St. Thomas himself speaking of Christ as a sacrament in these lectures is when he speaks in his commentary on Ephesians about the sacrament of the Incarnation. It is not that he is speaking here of some distinct reality that is a sacred sign pointing to Christ's Incarnation. Rather, the sacrament St. Thomas means is the Incarnation itself. So clearly he has a wider use of the word sacrament than simply the seven sacraments which he recognizes as sacred signs instituted by Christ. We find a clear distinction of analogical meanings of the word sacrament in his commentary on the Pauline letter he reads as dedicated to a consideration of the sacraments. He starts off his commentary on 1 Corinthians with a quotation from the Old Testament, Wisdom 6.22, which in his Latin translation of the Bible reads, I will not hide God's sacraments from you. 
We should note that what sacraments was translating into Latin here was the Greek word mysteries. In fact, as we shall see, the Latin Vulgate used two words, two Latin words, sacramentum and mysterium, on different occasions to translate the one Greek word, mysterion, meaning that the Latin terms sacrament and mystery were more or less interchangeable. So on the face of it, a sacrament is a secret, a mystery. After the quotation, however, St. Thomas distinguishes two meanings of the word sacrament. The first is something secret. It doesn't have to be a sacred secret, St. Thomas says, but sacrament is especially used of secrets that have to do with a sacred reality. That's the first meaning. The second meaning is this, a sign of a sacred reality. The second meaning is the one that applies to the seven sacraments, which are signs. But what St. Thomas clarifies here is that the second meaning of sign also contains within it the first meaning of secret. When we say that, for example, the Eucharist is a sacrament, we're saying not only that it is a sign of a sacred reality, but that divine power is at work here secretly or in a hidden way. Not that the emphasis for St. Thomas is simply on secrecy. He quotes Tobit 12.7. It is good to hide the sacrament of a king. That is, it's good to keep the king's secrets. But it is honorable to reveal and confer the works of God. The point for St. Thomas is that the sacraments of God were not to remain hidden or secret, but should instead be manifested to Christ's people so that we have knowledge for salvation as well as purification and preparation for a reward, so that we have spiritual lives in Christ, so to speak. Going back to the commentary on Ephesians, we can examine how St. Thomas places the incarnation within this range of meaning of the word sacrament. As he understands 1 Corinthians to be about grace in the sacraments, so he takes Ephesians to be about the unity of the church in respect of grace. He thus sees St. Paul's writing here as aimed at the strengthening of Christians in good habits and to encourage them towards greater perfection. And Paul begins to strengthen them at the beginning of the letter by giving thanks to God for gifts received. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with spiritual blessings. These gifts orientating us to heaven are being chosen for holiness in love, being predestined to adoption as God's children through Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace, Christ in whom we are graced and given redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
according to the riches of his grace. Now at this point, St. Thomas does something unexpected. The blessing that comes next in the text, he takes to apply specifically to the apostles rather than to all Christians. And it's in this section that the phrase sacrament of the incarnation occurs. It seems to me that there are no words in the original text itself that absolutely justify this sudden switch of focus from all Christians to the apostles. But St. Thomas is working from the fact that grace is said in the Latin translation to superabound in us. While this overflowing of grace could surely apply to us as Christians, St. Thomas takes it to mean that the grace that superabounds is greater than the grace that is present more generally in Christians. And the fact that grace superabounds in all wisdom and prudence puts St. Thomas in mind of the apostles, because it was the apostles who especially needed wisdom and prudence for their teaching and pastoral offices in the church. That the apostles would need wisdom to teach is pretty obvious, but prudence St. Thomas takes here as to do with governing. The Latin prudentia translates the Greek word phronesis, which means something like good sense or a more practical wisdom. But this practical wisdom is used philosophically in different ways, as St. Thomas knows from Aristotle. One way is the prudence an individual needs to govern their own individual actions well. And another prudence is what is required by a leader in order to govern a community well. St. Thomas evidently takes the prudence St. Paul speaks of here as specifically a prudence for leadership. And this is what the apostles needed to shepherd the church well. And this is one reason why grace had to superabound in them. This wisdom and prudence are linked to their being made known the sacrament of his will, that is, God's will. Sacrament of the Incarnation is St. Thomas's gloss on St. Paul's actual phrase, sacrament of his will. St. Thomas characterizes this sacrament in terms of the blessing of an uncommon revelation made to the apostles. He declares that it is as though St. Paul had said that the apostles' wisdom does not consist in discovering the natures of material realities, nor the course of the stars, nor anything like that, but rather it consists in knowledge of Christ. We should note here that St. Thomas quotes 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul speaks of himself knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. 
the incarnation is thus for St. Thomas never separated from its redemptive purpose, implying that the sacrament of the incarnation is also the sacrament of redemption, language St. Paul uses later, uh, that St. Thomas uses later in the commentary. St. Thomas says that because this wisdom of the apostles consists in knowing the crucified Christ, St. Paul goes on to say that God might make known the sacrament of his will. Now, St. Thomas immediately explains that sacrament means sacred secret. So we are more concerned here with sacrament in the first sense of secret rather than of the second sense. St. Thomas further explains that the sacred secret hidden from the beginning is the sacrament of the incarnation, which I'm taking also to mean of redemption. So how then does St. Thomas exactly explain sacrament of God's will? He does so by noting the importance to knowledge of something of knowing its cause. He gives the example of us knowing what's going to happen in the future. We can only predict that something like an eclipse is going to happen if we already know the cause. If we don't have knowledge of the cause, we won't have knowledge of the future events it causes. And St. Thomas thinks we have something similar in why Paul speaks of the sacrament of God's will. Paul is indicating the cause of the sacrament, that is, the cause of the incarnation. And that cause is God's will. St. Thomas then puts together a number of scriptural texts to show how the sacrament of the incarnation is caused by God's will. For example, he cites John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is, of course, an act of God's will here. The point St. Thomas goes on to make, though, has more to do with the hiddenness of God's will itself. Knowing the cause of the incarnation in order to know the incarnation, is not going to be straightforward. We could say this is because we are concerned here with a cause that is something even more hidden, even more secret than the incarnation itself. He quotes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians to the effect that no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And he concludes, So the incarnation's cause was concealed from everyone except those to whom God revealed it through the Holy Spirit. He quotes 1 Corinthians again, To us, God has revealed these things by his Spirit. Where St. Thomas is going with this is to affirm that the sacrament, the secret, is made known because God made known its cause, that is, his will, to the apostles. 
And here he turns to the words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, where the Father has kept these things hidden from the wise and prudent, in this case, those who are wise and prudent in worldly terms. Rather, it was God's gracious will to reveal these things to little ones. St. Thomas does not say so, but I suppose these little ones are by implication here the apostles, who have a different wisdom and prudence from the world, which is knowledge of Christ crucified. But the final scriptural passage St. Thomas brings forward to explain the incarnation and its revelation as God's will comes from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but is now manifested to his saints, to whom God would make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. What St. Thomas is doing here is to interpret the sacrament of God's will in Ephesians in the light of what Paul says about this mystery in Colossians. It seems to me that St. Thomas does this because he knows that the sacrament which appears in the Latin Vulgate of Ephesians and the mystery which appears in the Latin Vulgate of Colossians is the same word, mysterion in Greek, mystery or secret. In each case, the same Greek word has been translated into Latin in a different way, either as sacrament or as mystery, that is secret. This suggests to me that St. Thomas, aware of this fact, has all along been understanding Ephesians in the light of Colossians, a letter on which he had not yet lectured when he was lecturing on Ephesians, but which he was always holding in his mind. This is how he interpreted the word sacrament as something secret or hidden, because he knew the basic meaning of sacramentum in Ephesians was quite simply equivalent to mysterium in Colossians. While St. Thomas thought Ephesians was about grace and the unity of the church, he thought Colossians was about defending this church from attack. The passage St. Thomas has in mind for interpreting Ephesians is in chapter 1 of Colossians, where Paul is commending his suffering for the church and his ministry as an apostle to the Colossians. It seems to me that the fact that Paul's apostolic ministry was clearly the context of speaking of the mystery in Colossians 1 may have confirmed St. Thomas in supposing that it was the apostles who received knowledge of the same sacrament in Ephesians 1. But what St. Thomas takes from Colossians concerns the immediate purpose of Paul's apostleship, which was to fulfill the word of God by his preaching to the Gentiles according to God's plan. What we have here in the text 
is a reference to the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to the saints. This is the subject of Paul's preaching. What St. Thomas emphasizes is that it was through Paul's ministry that the mystery, which he explains as a secret, which was previously hidden, has now been made known in the Gentile world. The mystery is, of course, Christ, and St. Thomas is clear that the ancient philosophers, that is, the Platonists, who seem already to have known something about Christ's divinity by speaking in their philosophy of God's word, nevertheless knew nothing of the word becoming flesh, that is, the mystery of the incarnation. St. Thomas fields the objection that the incarnation was already known by the Jewish prophets and so had already been made known to generations past. He responds that it was not known clearly by them as it is known clearly by the apostles. It is this understanding of the mystery of the incarnation as revealed to the apostles that helps St. Thomas interpret the meaning of sacrament of God's will found in Ephesians. Reading about mystery in Colossians helped St. Thomas understand sacrament in Ephesians to mean the same, mystery or hidden secret. And this also fits with how in chapter 3 of Ephesians, St. Thomas will comment on St. Paul's presentation of himself there as a minister of Christ, sent to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you look at the commentary on chapter 3, you'll find all the same themes. Returning to Ephesians 1, I would like to highlight St. Thomas's emphasis on the role of the apostles a little and draw out a few points. A point St. Thomas makes himself concerns an inequality among the saints, where grace abounds in us, but superabounds in the apostles, a principle which he applies elsewhere throughout the body of Christ and even all creation. When he first mentioned superabundance in his lecture, he immediately added, and I think we can detect a certain vehemence, Whence the rashness, not to say error, of those who dare equate the grace and glory of some saints with that of the apostles. Putting other saints on a level with the apostles in terms of grace, he clearly sees as wrong and rash. Not that he means to over-elevate the apostles themselves, he quickly adds that they are more fully graced than the other saints, with the exception of Christ and his virgin mother. Behind all this lies a principle that a greater dignity was preordained by God to some saints, and hence he gave them a greater grace. Christ comes first with a unique grace in his humanity from the Incarnation. And then he immediately mentions the fact that God endowed the glorious Virgin Mary, whom he chose to be his mother, with special graces 
in both her body and her soul. The point is that the higher the dignity, the greater the grace. Next in dignity after the mother of God come the apostles, whom St. Thomas takes to be the ones who in Romans 8 received the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, all this fits with St. Thomas's theology of creation, but also his theology of grace. The Spirit apportions grace as he wills according to God's plan, and the members of Christ's body live the life of grace and then glory to different levels of fullness, which contribute diversely to the whole. What we receive for our Christian lives depends ultimately on God's varied grace. This, however, is not a perspective that is readily intelligible where people are formed by a more egalitarian mentality. I find that people often assume that the saints in glory will be more or less equal in their enjoyment of God and of heavenly life, and meet St. Thomas's more Catholic position with surprise. However, I find that Catholics rarely reply when questioned that they actually think they will be equal to Our Lady in heaven. But as far as the apostles go, their reactions are often less certain. But there is something else to consider about the apostles, and that is the connection with their unique role, as St. Thomas understands it, in the reception and transmission of revelation. As a master of the Christian life, St. Thomas teaches us that we are taught by Christ's apostles. Again, this does not sit so well with some contemporary assumptions among Christians. While the world we experience has become somewhat more egalitarian, at the same time, it is hardly egalitarian regarding the past. There is, of course, reason for this, at least because our wisdom regarding natural realities or the course of the stars and so on is much more advanced than in the time of St. Thomas or the time of the Apostles. The 20th century also saw in theology the eventual triumph of the idea of doctrinal development, that the church's understanding of the faith and her teaching progress over the centuries. It is easy to suppose from this perspective that we have a better understanding of the Christian faith now than did those in the time of the apostles. And yet, though he recognizes an element of doctrinal development, St. Thomas is at odds with any idea that we know better than the apostles. Any idea of doctrinal development developed from St. Thomas's theological principles must recognize the normativity of apostolic teaching as much as the demands of the present and the future in the church. It was to the apostles that the sacrament of God's will was revealed, and we are taught by them. So Master Thomas teaches us. 
Returning to St. Thomas on Ephesians 1, our doctor says that having identified what the sacrament of God's will is, he will go on to explain something more about it. And I'm going to concentrate here on what he has to say about the purpose of the Incarnation. When Paul says to restore all things that are in heaven and on earth, Thomas takes him to be identifying the sacrament's purpose. Scriptural passages such as this one are of more interest in theology today, particularly because of the universalist implication that is often drawn from them, a universal restoration of human beings and even of fallen angels of all creation. In this context, I think it's worth noting how St. Thomas interprets the passage and that it certainly includes a transformation of the non-intellectual creation at the Last Judgment. These creatures are re-established, St. Thomas says, on the basis of the fact that everything was originally made for humanity. The logic seems to be that given humanity is redeemed, what was made for humanity is also restored for them. However, this universality does not apply in the same way to all intellectual creatures. For St. Thomas, it's definite that hell will be inhabited by both human beings and angels, and that's a starting point for him. Thus, the passage in Ephesians cannot be about the restoration of all humans and angels. Nevertheless, he realizes that the reference to all things on earth could be taken as meaning universal human restoration, and he counters this by the distinction between sufficiency and efficacy with reference to Colossians 1.20, where through the blood of Christ's cross, peace is made with regard to things both on earth and in heaven. There is a universal reconciliation of earthly things to heavenly things as regards human beings, he concedes, insofar as Christ's cross is sufficient for the reconciliation of all human beings to God. However, this reconciliation is not something that will prove efficacious for every human being, and to this extent he admits that everything will not be restored. St. Thomas also realizes that the passage's reference to heaven could be taken to mean a restoration of fallen angels. However, he declares that Christ did not die for fallen angels, which he says is one of the errors imagined by Origen, and he tells his audience to beware of it. Nevertheless, although he does not suppose that the fallen angels ever enjoyed the heavenly vision of God, he does suppose that these immaterial creatures were created as present in the material Empyrean heaven, which might thus be considered to require restoration on account of their absence through their fall. Following earlier tradition, St. Thomas sees this absence as repaired by the presence of human beings in heaven. 
we might consider as an analogy how we can restore an item of furniture by replacing some of its parts. And where new parts of the original material are unavailable, we restore it in some other way. St. Thomas seems to suppose that the restoration of the heavens through the sacrament is something like this, where we are called not simply to a supernatural destiny that befits our humanity, but one where we are called to glorify God in the place of angels. In conclusion, where does this leave us who are active pilgrims on the way to this final destiny by way of Christ the sacrament? I give the last word to St. Thomas in his commentary on Philippians, where he declares that Christ is even now our life. For some call their life, and that from, that from which they are moved to activity, as hunters call hunting their life, and friends call friendship their life. In such a way, therefore, Christ is our life, because Christ is the whole principle of our life and of our activity. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>